Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Ryan. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. If you're going to buy stuff from Amazon anyway, it would be cool if you first clicked on the Amazon.com link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page, and Amazon will kick a few shekels back to Rocktail Hour to help fund the free podcast. Today, Treg is going to bring us the story behind London Calling by The Clash. Treg? Thanks, Ryan. Uh, London Calling is has actually been requested by several listeners, by Stan, John, Roberto, and Stuart. Wow. So we were long overdue in, in, in doing this podcast. The Clash is a British punk band, and this song came off of their 1979 album, London Calling. In order to understand the song a little bit better, I think we need to talk about the band first. The Clash was formed in London in 1976, and as we've talked about in other podcasts, England throughout the 60s and the 70s went through some economic crises, and, and this was another time of economic crisis. This was a time of high unemployment, high inflation, rising gas prices, and upheaval in the Middle East. And it spawned numerous punk bands of disillusioned British youths who felt that they had no future. Joe Strummer said that he heard the Sex Pistols play at a club, and he immediately quit his pub rock band and joined with Mick Jones on guitar, Keith Levine on guitar, Paul Simonon on bass, and Terry Chimes on drums to start The Clash. The, the British punk bands, like the Sex Pistols and The Clash, took the New York punk sound, that thrashing guitar sound, and the ripped clothes look uh, that was popularized by the New York Dolls and the Ramones. Yeah. And they infused it with venomous anger. And so that was what was typical of this, of this British punk, was this venomous anger that infused the lyrics. Paul Simonon said that in the 70s, when we formed the band, there was a lot of tension in Britain, lots of strikes, and the country was an economic mess. There also was aggression towards anyone who looked different, especially the punks. So the name The Clash seemed appropriate for the band's name. I'd never thought of that before. It would make sense. And we talked about this before, kind of with the... What was the other podcast we did where we talked about the London sound and the, the look, the mods? Oh, yeah. The, the Who. The Who, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. This was a little bit later. This is in the mid-1970s as opposed to the 1960s. Fashion and music are melded together. Then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's interesting. I never really thought about that before. I wonder which comes first. You know, does, does the music reflect the fashion or does the fashion reflect the music, you That's a good question. Racism was also rampant in the mid-1970s, and many musicians at the time were blaming blacks for their economic problems. And there was a neo-Nazi National Front group that was gaining power at the time. An organization called Rock Against Racism united many of the British punk bands, including The Clash, to fight against racism. Mick Jones said that if you want to enjoy yourself, you sit in an armchair and watch TV. But if you want to get actively involved, rock and roll is about rebellion. Yeah. And that just summarizes sure rock and roll to me. It's about Especially rebellion. Punk, yep. Yep. Exactly. Joe Strummer also said that we're against fascism and racism, and we're hoping to educate any kid who comes to listen to us just to keep them from joining the neo-Nazi National Front when things get really tough. To back up their words, the Clash headlined an anti-Nazi League carnival, which was the first Rock Against Racism concert in Britain in the spring of 1978, which included a march by 100,000 people from Trafalgar Square to the East End for an open-air performance. I, I really respect the Clash for that. You know, you think of, you think about uh, punk groups 
as just being anti-establishment and not really standing for anything. But here's some guys that, that aren't just saying, you know, we hate the world and tear everything down, yeah. but they're saying... Turn into activism. Exactly. And and they were particularly interested in this. And in fact, while a lot of uh, punk bands were signing with independent labels, which you would assume because they want to do their own thing, they don't want to be tied down to the man. Well, The Clash actually signed with CBS so that they can enlarge their distribution. And Mick Jones said about this decision, he said, we realized that if we were a little more subtle, if we branched out a little, we might reach a few more people. And maybe they'd start humming the songs, they'll read the lyrics, and learn something from them. I really respect that, that they were out to educate people like that. Yeah, not afraid to use their resources to get the word out. Exactly. Let's talk about the song. The song London Calling is from the band's 1979 double album called London Calling, same name. It reached number 11 on the UK singles chart in December 1979, and Rolling Stone rated the song as number 15 on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Nice. And that's the highest position of, of The Clash as well as any punk rock song. Really? In 1989, the magazine also rated the London Calling album as the best album of the 1980s. Surprising to me that it's number 15. That seems really, really high. That's well, really? well respected. Well, sure. Song, yeah. yeah. I, Clash are great. I just, I'm surprised that it's it's rated that high. Pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the song was written by Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, and the band's political sensibility is reflected in this song. While most punk music at this point reflected personal emotional concerns, the Clash addressed current events and world crises with rock and roll fury. The title alludes to the BBC's service station's identification, This is London Calling, which was used during World War II, often as a broadcast to occupied countries. And they wanted to get, fit the mood of that. Oh, really? The lyrics reflect concerns that Strummer felt about world events. Joe Strummer said at one point, We felt that we were struggling, about to slip down a slope or something, grasping with our fingernails, and there was no one there to help us. So the song has been described as an apocalyptic song, detailing many ways that the world could end, including the coming of the Ice Age, starvation, and war, flood, things like that. Joe Strummer explained in 1988 that he had read about 10 news reports in one day calling down all variety of plagues on us. He uh, was riding in a, in a taxi with his girlfriend to, to their home at World's End, which is the name of the actual name of the village. Of the village? Yeah. Uh, which is appropriate for the song. Yeah. And he said, there was a lot of Cold War nonsense going on, and we knew that London was susceptible to flooding. She told me to write something about that. And so that was the inspiration for the song, to write about the, the end of the world, or the coming of the end of the world. Uh, Mick Jones said that his initial inspiration for the song wasn't British politics. It was our fear of drowning. In 1979, they had seen a headline in the newspaper that warned that the North Sea might rise and push the Thames, and that the Thames would then flood the city. Uh, Mick Jones said, to us, the headline was just another example about how everything was coming undone. So let's talk specifically about some of the lyrics. One of the lyrics references a nuclear error, which refers to the, the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, which occurred in 1979. Uh, there's the line, London is drowning and I live by the river. And that comes from concerns that if the, the, yeah, if the Thames flooded, that most of central London would drown. Strummer's concern for police brutality is evident through the lines, we ain't got no swing except for that ring of that truncheon thing, as the Metropolitan Police at the time had a truncheon as standard-issued equipment. 
Social criticism is also featured through reference to the effects of casual drug taking. And the, and the lyric is, we ain't got no high, except for that one with the yellowy eyes. Although some people think that the reference to yellowy eyes is to, I think Strummer had a bout of hepatitis at one point. <laughs> and so some people speculate that the yellowy eyes refers to that. Uh, there's a line in the song about phony Beatlemania biting the dust. And McJones said that that was aimed at all the touristy sound-alike rock bands in London in the late 1970s. We were fans of the Beatles, the Who and the Kinks. But we wanted to remake all of that. We wanted London Calling to reclaim the raw, natural culture. We looked back to the earlier rock music with great pleasure, but many of the issues people were facing were new and frightening. Our message was more urgent, that things were going to pieces. The song breaks down eerily at the end with Joe Strummer's cryptic last words, I never felt so much alike, and then it echoes out, alike, alike, alike. Mm -hmm. And then there's Morse code feedback at the same time that spells out SOS. In live versions of the song, Strummer sang a complete version of the final line, which is, I never felt so much alike singing the blues, which is kind of interesting. Mick Jones said that the Morse code thing uh, at the end was him. He turned off his guitar pickups and used the remaining pickup to tack out the radio signal. And he said that this was to give it that BBC sound on the fade out. Oh, nice. Yeah, kind of cool. So the music features the band's famous combination of reggae bass lines and punk electric guitar and vocals. Musically, it's a lot different from their earlier frenzied punk rock uh, with, the, with the typical punk rock chord progressions. Mick Jones said that once we had the words down, I began creating music to fit the rhythm of the lyrics. I wanted the urgency of a news alert. We talked about that quite a bit with uh, making the music fit the mood and the yep. message that you're trying to, for, that you're trying to put across. And, and they do a great job with this one. The, uh, the dirge-like apocalyptical feel is intensified by Topper Hedden's martial drumming without backbeat in synchrony with staccato guitar chords, which I just love that part of it, plucking at the strings yeah, yeah. to create I, that staccato a, yeah. sound. But Paul Simonon's haunting and pulsating bass line also adds a lot, together with the group's deliberate mid-tempo pace and Strummer's icy lyrics and baleful delivery really creates this great mood of the world is coming to an end. And Strummer's howls during the instrumental break further fuel the atmosphere of paranoia. Mick Jones has said that most people aren't aware that my guitar solo in the middle of the song is backward, after I recorded it, I turned the tape over and overdubbed it into the mix that way. That's why it whooshes. Oh, I wanted cool. to get that sound raw and unhinged. Nice. I wonder how they do that live, you know, to get that sound. Huh? must not yeah. sound quite the same, I, I suspect. I think he probably suspends himself in the air upside down. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like we talked about with Van Halen and the jump, how it was, you know, was butchered in the studio into different pieces. Then you just re recreate that live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but how do you play a guitar backwards? Well, it's, it's not the guitar playing being played backwards. It's the notes being played backwards. Well, no, that's what I meant. So how do you play the notes backwards live? You just <laughs> memorize them yes, that way? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're not going to get that swishing sound or whatever necessarily, but you can you can play the notes backwards. Okay. I guess. Yeah, sure. It makes sense. You just transpose the yeah. the notes, I guess. Okay. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't have the same sound because instead right. of the resonance of the string afterwards, yeah. it would you wouldn't get that. That's interesting, though. I'll have to listen to that closer now. Yeah. yeah. I thought this was really cool. Topper Hedden said that during the recording of London Calling, Guy Stevens, who was their producer, would come into the recording room to intensify the mood. One time he came in while we were recording and started smashing chairs against the wall to increase the atmosphere. <laughs> but not everyone was able to get out of the way, and Joe was singing and playing the piano, and Guy didn't want it in there. 
He picked up a bottle of red wine and poured it all over Joe's hands and onto the keyboard. When someone's swinging a ladder around and you have to keep ducking, the music is definitely alive. That's awesome. <laughs> Very punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had things like that, you know, as an attorney. Really? Oh, yeah, I'm writing a brief and someone will come in and be swinging. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, really? What? That's a dangerous job. <laughs> That's edgy. The band was concerned about the high cost of the album, so they convinced the label to make it a one disc with a free single, and uh, CBS agreed to let them do this. Wait, what do you mean with a free single? I, I think, you know, with an LP, it would it would be just a, the small single vinyl. Okay. You know? um, and they wanted to give it, away, give it away for free? Yeah, they wanted it to include a free single. Oh. So a single, oh, a okay. regular single album with a with an extra single for free. But CBS didn't realize that the free single disc would play at 33 RPM and contain eight songs, therefore making it a double album. Wow! <laughs> so they so they tricked they tricked uh, CBS into selling a double album for the price of a single. These, these guys sound like they're pretty smart businessmen yeah. too. <laughs> but they're taking care of their fans too. Definitely. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's yeah, yeah. Any good any good band, any good musicians or bands are gonna take care of their fans over the record label. Absolutely. Now, there's something else in, that I found to be really interesting about this album, and that's the cover. The uh, The cover of the album featured a photograph of Paul Simon smashing up his bass guitar on stage at the New York Palladium, and it's been voted by Q Magazine and others as the greatest rock and roll photograph ever taken. Really? Yeah. We know that the time that he smashed his guitar, it was 10.50 p.m. because at the same time he broke his watch, and then he handed the busted pieces to the photographer who was Penny Smith. Oh, that's cool. So this is what he said about, uh, you know, about this event. He said, the sound on stage was bad, and I struggled to hear my notes. Also, most of the audience was sitting, so I assumed that either they didn't like the show or that security wasn't letting them dance. In frustration, I took it out on my bass guitar. Photographer Penny Smith took a photo. It was so quick and sudden, which is why the image of me smashing the guitar is blurry. It's really iconic if you look at the at the. I don't remember seeing that. I'm surprised that's that's number one as opposed to like Jimi Hendrix flaming guitar. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That seems more iconic to me. I was just going to mention too for any of the fans out there listening who like The Clash, if you like the sound of The Clash and you're not familiar with Big Audio Dynamite, you need to look them up, give them a, a listen. That's Mick Jones who uh, formed that band in the 80s. And they, were, they had some really great songs. Sweet. Uh, 80s through 90s, mid 90s, probably. They maybe st actually, I think they are still around because they played Coachella a couple years ago. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Very cool. That's all I got. All right. Thanks, Treg. You can listen to a clip from the song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong. If you have an interesting Rocktail Hour of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. Until the next Rock Till Hour, rock on. Rock on.